Hello, and welcome to the Frequencies Podcast. My name is Michael J. Johnson. I'm your host. First of all, I want to apologize for taking so long between episodes. Life just kind of took over. But now that summer is here and I have more time, I will finally be lining up some of those interviews as promised. So look forward to that. At the end of this episode, I'll be talking about Captain America Civil War, and the discussion will contain some spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie yet, you can stop the podcast when you hear the spoiler warning, then come back after you've seen it. Unless you don't plan to see it and don't care, but I think you should see it. And it'll be a very short discussion, so, you know, it's not going to take up too much of the podcast because I've got a lot of other stuff to talk about. So a few items in the things I'm geeking out about column. Final season of Person of Interest is here. I was pretty late to the party for this series, so I'm sad to see it go so soon after I discovered it. But so far, I haven't been disappointed with the final season. The Flash has still been consistently good. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is not as consistent, but it's still good. I still mourn the loss of community, and I've really found nothing to fill that deep comedy void in my heart. In fact, in my intense grief, I haven't even really been able to rewatch old episodes lately, which is kind of new for me. In more sad news, Agent Carter was not renewed for a third season. We need to get a hashtag campaign going or something. In better news, though, it looks like there will be another season of The X-Files, but we won't see it until the 2017 through 18 season. Of course, a lot could happen between now and then. I mean, who knows? President Trump might take over all the networks and force them to only air reruns of The Apprentice. You're probably only unaware of this if you've been living in a cave, but Game of Thrones is back, and they're going beyond the books. And it's kind of exciting. Now, in the aftermath of Daredevil Season 2, which I really liked, by the way, it looks like John Bernthal's Punisher will get a well-deserved season of his own. He was one of the best things about Season 2 anyway, so I'm pretty happy about that. Now, I was planning on doing a podcast episode on Daredevil, but it didn't happen. So I'll just say that you should watch it ASAP, and it's on Netflix. Also on Netflix was Jessica Jones, of course, last year. And now, from what I hear, that's going to get a season two before the Defenders show actually happens. Also, if you're not excited for Doctor Strange in November, you're just dead inside. I'm sorry, that's the only way I can say it. Fear the Walking Dead Season 2 has been pretty good, and it's definitely stepped up the pace from Season 1. Also on AMC, the Preacher series begins next week. Now, I've never read that comic, but I've heard really good things about it, so I'm definitely going to check out the series. And finally, Whispering Pines Season 2 is happening later this month with a number of new cast members. So I'm a little sad that uh, some of the old cast members won't be returning, but uh, I'm interested to see what they do with it. At this point, they're going to be getting beyond the original source material, which was a book or several books or something like that. So uh, we'll see what they do with it. If you follow me on Facebook, you'll know this, but back in the end of April, I posted a rant on Facebook about the Boston music scene. Now, this has been simmering for a while, but I have some very real concerns about the music scene in Boston. I know that Boston is not the only city with problems in that regard. No matter where you live, it's tough to make it as a musician. 
but I have friends in other metro areas who are still able to make a go at it. Now, some of them don't have advanced degrees like I do, so a university gig isn't an option, and they're having to be a little more entrepreneurial about it, but they're making it work, and that's not a bad thing. Now, I don't see much of this in Boston. Here are a few of the problems that I'm seeing from my perspective. First of all, it's very expensive to live here. Another problem, people aren't going out to see live shows these days, at least for unsigned bands. This may have happened at one point, and from what I hear, it did, but it's not happening anymore. So every year, we lose a few more of the important clubs. Now, my theory, I think this is partly due to parking issues and the trains stop running around midnight, and there's a ton of other problems, too. And I can't necessarily fault the clubs for the most part. Live music is costing the clubs very little. And when you're in an original band, a typical gig entails sharing the bill as well as the door fee with four or five other bands. The clubs don't really have to pay bands anything beyond that. It's an accepted practice here, so you just have to kind of deal with it. So if you're a club owner and you can't get people to come out to a show and the rent keeps going up every year, like I'm sure it does, something's probably got to get. So in that way, like I said, I, I'm not sure if I can totally blame the venues. Another problem, we lost our flagship weekly alternative newspaper, the Boston Phoenix, a few years ago. So for my friends who are living in other cities, it's sort of like the Westward in Denver or the Riverfront Times in St. Louis or the New Times in Miami. I think this was one of the biggest blows to the scene, actually. Plus, music-oriented radio here is surprisingly bad. There's a few good stations and a few local music shows, but that's about all. Another big blow to the scene, some of the leading lights of the local scene are beginning to look elsewhere. In fact, two established leaders in the scene are already leaving to go to the West Coast. And these two are hugely talented, and they've been largely responsible for a lot of the interesting artistic work in both music and film around here. And they are specifically leaving because they see no future here as artists. They've been pretty, pretty upfront about that. Another problem, there are way more musicians here than jobs. This is made worse by the fact that you have a revolving group of about 4,000 Berkeley students. Band leaders, contractors, and club owners know they can get student musicians cheaper, and they do so on a regular basis. This has also, quite frankly, created a real ageism problem. I've heard many stories about this, and it's even more obvious when you look at Craigslist Musicians Wanted ads and regularly see the phrase, no geezers. And I had a couple of experiences myself where I was invited to audition for a band, then later found out they were just using my audition to pressure a younger musician to get into line. Of course, I'm also in the worst demographic as a vocalist and guitarist. You can throw a rock in Boston and chances are you'll hit either a vocalist or a guitarist or a Dunkin' Donuts. The only thing that saved me is my ability to play bass. So this problem has been personal to me, but I still think it's a problem. This is a very insular scene. If you didn't either grow up here or attend Berkeley or New England Conservatory, you're an outsider. Doesn't matter how long you live here, 
If I could do a decent New England accent, I might be able to blend in, but it's not happening. Most of the live original music in the Boston area is happening in Cambridge and Somerville, and not really in the city of Boston proper. It's partly because the process of applying for an entertainment license is pretty arcane, time-consuming, and expensive, and they only grant a certain amount of them. There's very few all-ages venues or shows here. This is a huge problem. In fact, in the city of Boston, if you have a band member who's under 21, you can't even play in any of the clubs. This seems especially perplexing when you realize Boston's a college town. It just doesn't really make any sense at all. So why am I concerned about this? Well, at this point, with my teaching and the small amount of gigs I can get, I'm doing okay financially. But my dream is to put something together to help struggling musicians. Specifically, my idea is an artist collective, which could include a performance space, a recording studio, and possibly even a video editing suite, among other things. But I'm no longer convinced Boston's the right place to do this. So rather than continue to complain, I've been working on putting together a checklist for myself, and I'm gonna share it with you in hopes that it helps you too. So for the musician who's looking for a change of scenery, what kinds of things might provide hints that a city has a thriving music scene that will welcome you with open arms, and what should you be looking for? Number one, affordable housing and cost of living. So just Google cost of living calculator, and you can find websites that allow you to type in a city name or zip code. Nothing's more damaging to a scene than high rents. For instance, if your band decides to tour for two months, how are you gonna pay your rent? That's not really enough time to find someone to sublease. Number two, original music clubs that are willing to pay musicians. So there's not much more to say about this except that there should be more than just a couple of clubs. Look on their calendars, and if you see quite a few band names you don't recognize, and live music seems to be happening at least four or five nights a week, this is a good sign. Also, check and see if the venues are advertising upcoming gigs on social media. If they're really relying more on the bands to do their own promotion, that could be a problem. Number three, plenty of cover band and society band gigs at Paywell. So even if this isn't your cup of tea, if there's a lot of this going on, that also really means that people are going out to hear live music. Number four, all ages venues or clubs with all ages nights. I can't really stress this enough. All ages venues include coffee houses and teen centers, and most clubs I've seen in other cities will have an all ages night or an early all ages show. This is super important. Number five, no ageism. Now this goes both ways. First of all, a scene shouldn't be too youth oriented. There should be a healthy respect and continued opportunities for older musicians, whether they're longtime fixtures to the scene or relatively new to town. But there should also be plenty of opportunities for young musicians just starting out. There's actually scenes where this doesn't really happen. One that comes to mind is Branson, Missouri, where the old guard has pretty much all the gigs locked up. Number six, alternative press. Any thriving music scene should have at least one thriving alternative weekly as well. Now I know that print media in general is in trouble, but some of these papers have even moved to an online presence in recent years. All right, number seven, 
college or alternative radio. If a city only has top 40 urban and classic rock formats in addition to talk radio, it could be a problem. There should be at least a few college stations that have a decent reach in terms of transmitters. I know radio's not as important as it once was, but people still listen in their cars. Number eight, mom and pop music stores. So I'm thinking mostly of instrument stores, but this could also include record stores. In general, there should be record stores. If you have mostly guitar centers and Sam Ash, it's not a healthy scene. Number nine, music schools and music programs. So a healthy scene will have strong music programs in the public schools, plenty of community music schools, and at least one or two strong college or university music departments. Number 10, additional musical opportunities that pay. So I've already mentioned community music schools and music stores, which are great opportunities for musicians to make money when they're not playing. Other possibilities are church gigs, studios or sound reinforcement gigs. And also if a city has a thriving indie film scene, this could also provide opportunities. Number 11, a good ecosystem. So this one's a little bit more difficult to quantify, but here's a scenario. If you find that most of the photographers in a city are willing to cut incredible deals for your promo pics, this could mean that they're having trouble finding paying customers. If there's only a few recording studios in town and they're charging rock-bottom prices, this might also be bad news. You may be scared to go to a place where these services are a little more expensive, but if they are more expensive, that usually means that the musicians in town are making enough money to afford it. Number 12, lots of Craigslist musicians wanted ads. This isn't always the best indication, but it is an important metric. Also, check to see that most of the bands looking for musicians are actually working bands and not just jam sessions or something like that. 13. Little or no pay-to-play. Now, this one's a little bit difficult to find out. One thing you can look for, though, is an abnormal number of Battle of the Bands types events in a city. A Battle of the Bands is the ultimate pay-to-play scam. It's a way for a club to get one or more nights of free entertainment and call it an opportunity. Number 14, festivals that feature local bands and performers. And number 15, my final one, a vibrant art scene. So if there's evidence that other types of artists are doing well, this can be a good sign. Look for art galleries, community theater, comedy clubs, any opportunities for local artists. One caveat to this is some cities may seem to have a thriving arts scene with art museums, theaters, a symphony hall, and such, but that could just be an indication that they're bringing in outside talent in the form of touring companies and exhibitions. And I'm looking at you right now, Boston. So that's my checklist. I'm sure there's a few things I haven't really thought of. It's kind of an evolving checklist, but it's a good start. I know that the current mayor of Boston is making the arts a priority, so some things could change in the future. Who knows how long it'll take, though. And a number of the issues I've raised are systemic and go beyond what can really be fixed by government initiatives and efforts. For instance, I can't really imagine what can be done about the ageism problem here, as well as the deep entrenchment and inbred nature of the music scene. 
So more updates on that in the future as things progress. I'll let you know how it's going. Now I'd like to talk about Prince. As you probably know, Prince passed away a few weeks ago. Prince was a huge influence on me as a musician and especially as a guitarist. Like many people, I first became aware of him from his 1999 album, and then Purple Rain came out. I listened to the record nonstop for months, learned all the songs, and I actually saw the movie in the theaters probably two or three times. That was back in the day when it would take years for a video to come out on VHS. And so if you really wanted to try to make sure you remembered everything about a movie, you had to see it a number of times in the theater. Not that Purple Rain was the greatest movie in terms of acting and plot, but it just was a great opportunity to see Prince in action. I've also seen Prince perform live twice. And while I've probably really not connected with his music as much since the Graffiti Bridge album in 1991 or so, I've still always thought of him as a genius and really the type of musician I always aspired to be. I think his death is a great loss and I'm really sad that I'll never get to see him live again. But I also wanna talk about the circumstances of his death and how it's been portrayed by the media and on social media and that sort of thing. As a recovering addict myself, I'm very disappointed in the way people have talked about his death. I'm disappointed in the judgment and the lack of compassion displayed in the discussion of his possible addiction to painkillers. I heard similar things when Amy Winehouse and Whitney Houston passed away. And in fact, last year, when Scott Weiland of Stone Temple Pilots was found dead, I actually stayed away from social media for a few days. I just did not want to hear again some of the tone-deaf commentary and insensitive jokes that I'm sure dominated social media for a few days after that. The bottom line for me is this. Addiction is not a joke. It's not merely the sign of a weak character or lack of moral fiber. It's a serious and potentially deadly issue. And some people consider it a disease, and that's my thinking as well. If you've never suffered from addiction, just consider yourself lucky. But also, do us all a favor and keep your comments to yourself. Because unless you're a trained addiction counselor or someone who's either dealing with addiction or recovering from it, my guess is you probably don't really know what you're talking about. So anyway, rest in peace, Prince. You will sorely be missed. But we'll always have your music. Okay, here's your spoiler warning. So if you haven't seen Captain America Civil War yet, and you want to remain spoiler-free, it's time to turn off the podcast. Okay, so first of all, I've now seen this film three times. I saw it once in regular 3D, once in 2D, and once in IMAX 3D at one of the big IMAX theaters where they have the subwoofers under each seat, which was pretty amazing. This might be my favorite Marvel movie now. It's pretty darn close. 
Now, I admit there's a few plot holes and a couple of improbable coincidences if you really think hard about the plot. But I also believe almost all of them can be explained. I'm not one of those who completely hated the Civil War event when it happened in the comics back in 07 and 08. And I know a lot of people do hate that. But I definitely feel like this movie does a much better job with the story. So here are some of my highlights. Highlight number one, Black Panther. Chadwick Boseman was amazing. And the depiction of the Black Panther, his costume, the use of the vibranium to deflect bullets, his retractable claws that came out, just everything about the Black Panther was just awesome. And I really can't wait for that movie. I think that movie's gonna be great. And of course, the fact that the mid-credits scene was set in Wakanda was also really cool. Another highlight, Spider-Man. Now, I know I'm not the only person who thinks this, but I think this is the best on-screen depiction of Spider-Man yet. Maybe not as much Peter Parker, but definitely Spider-Man. I think they really caught the essence of Spidey. His constant patter and jokes and that sort of thing, and just how nerdy he was. And I don't even really care that it was actually pretty irresponsible of Tony Stark to bring a 15-year-old kid to a fight. I still think it was great. I've heard a lot of people complain about Marissa Tomei playing Aunt May, but I think it really makes sense. And she's a great actress, and uh, it's just cool to see her in this role. So I'm ready for the Spider-Man movie. I think it's going to be great. Another highlight, Giant Man. So one of the things I always loved about the character of Hank Pym in the comics, because he was the original Ant-Man, was the fact that he started out as Ant-Man just with the shrinking power. And then at some point, he got sort of bored with shrinking, I guess, and he became Giant Man, and his power was growing. And so for many years, he just kind of went back and forth. When I saw that Ant-Man was going to be in this movie, I kind of hoped that they would do this. And what I especially love about it is that there were no spoilers. They really kept it a secret so it would be a surprise, at least as far as I know. I never saw any trailers for it that, that spoiled that thing. So that was one of the better things about this movie. I think another good thing about this movie was it did not have a happy ending. In fact, it was a pretty unresolved ending. And it sort of makes sense. Now, of course, if you were expecting a lot of the stuff from the original Civil War comic to happen, some people were probably thinking Cap was going to die. And I'm glad that didn't happen. And I know a lot of people thought that Rhodey was going to die, but I'm also sort of glad that didn't happen. I don't really think we need to have a death in the Marvel Universe to make it more realistic or something. This is fantasy. I was also happy that we got to see the Vision use his phasing power quite a bit. And it was an interesting twist, I thought, that Wanda was able to manipulate his Mind Stone. 
I think that's going to make for some interesting interactions between them in the future. If you're familiar with the history of those two characters, at one point they actually were married. I could sort of see some sparks flying between those two anyway. So the fact that they are obviously linked through this Mind Stone is very interesting. So anyway, if I was to give ratings, I would give it 4.9 out of 5 stars. It's a perfect blend of action, drama, suspense, and of course that trademark Marvel humor. I also give it 4 thumbs up with both hands and both feet. So that's it for this episode. Thanks a lot for listening. Don't forget my website is michaeljjohnsonmusic.com. You can leave a comment there. Uh, if you'd like to review me on iTunes, that'd be great. My Twitter is at Mike J. Johnson. And my SoundCloud is soundcloud.com slash Michael J. Johnson. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>